Hey everyone, welcome or welcome back to the Quaybog Church podcast. At the end of this episode, take a moment to subscribe to our YouTube channel or check us out on Facebook. That way you'll have access to fresh content every week. But most importantly, we hope the following message inspires you to take your next step in your faith journey because our mission here at Quaybog is to help you worship, connect, and serve. Enjoy! So we're not going to hit all the questions, but these are, interestingly enough, the top types of questions that are being answered. So we're going to hit four of them this month. And last Sunday, we hit uh, kind of the bigger question of, all right, is there a good argument to made um, about God, period? Like, just God, like the idea of God. Can we, can we tackle that? Can we have anything that might justify belief in a God? And so, uh, to do that this month, we are going to be using Scripture, obviously. We're going to be using quite a bit of Scripture. But, since it's an apologetic type of a series, it's also going to pull in science and philosophy and history, because we have been given a lot to consider when it comes to our faith. We're not just called to a blind faith where there's no evidence whatsoever. So, the thing that we want to do during this series is say, okay, well, what is that evidence, and how can I talk about that? Because you've got people in your life that are also asking these questions, and you at times are going to have some of these questions. And another reason we want to do this series is, be- is because like, if I really do believe in Jesus as a follower of Christ, right, like I really believe in Him, there's going to be at times in my life when things start to fall apart, like when things get difficult, and knowing for certain that there is not only a God, but that God actually cares about me and wants a relationship with me, like that's when this stuff really matters, right? So that's why we're doing it, but... We also want to equip the church. So, uh, the, like, the reason we're doing this, though, is because we do see our job here uh, at Quaybog to equip everybody that comes, right? So, how do you follow Jesus? How can we equip you to do what you're supposed to do? Like, to just be a Christian, basically, right? So, our guiding principles, and we're going to start every service off with Scripture, the same ones, actually, just so we know what we're doing and why we're doing it. And so... In the, the first question comes from, or the first reason, I guess, comes from Ephesians chapter 4. And he himself gives some to be apostles. So Jesus gives his church some offices. Some are apostles, those like the church planters of the early times. Some are prophets. Some are evangelists. Some are pastors and teachers. Now, why do we have these offices? Well, because Jesus wants those people to equip the saints for the work of ministry to build up the body of Christ. So it's not my job to do everything. It's my job to build the church up so that the church can be the church, so that we actually know how to follow Jesus. We actually know what it is that we believe and why we believe it. Those are important things. Because we do actually have, in Scripture, in 1 Peter 3, the command to know what it is we believe and know it well enough that we can at least talk about it with other people, right? Not just say, well, I just believe. Uh, well, why? We should have reasons for that. And that's another reason for this series. So, in First Peter 3, this is what he says to the church. He says, look, even if you suffer for righteousness because you're living out your faith, you're blessed. Don't fear people that are going to try to intimidate you, right? Don't, don't do that because you're living out your faith. They're persecuting you. But instead, in your hearts, regard Christ as the Lord, right? Regard Christ also as holy. So, he's in charge now, and his way is best. And when we enter into these discussions, verse 16... We should be ready at any time to give a defense to anyone who asks for a reason that the hope that is in you. So, this hope that we have should be evident. And then so when people are like, hey, so why, why do you believe what you believe exactly? 
what we used to be able to say is, well, you know what, so these are some reasons. Not that you have to have all the answers, because you won't have all the answers. I talk to a lot of Christians, they don't like sharing their faith because they feel like they're eventually going to get a question that they don't know the answer to. Yes, you will, and you have to be okay with that, right? Because most people would rather you be honest, authentic, and real than have every answer, right? Because if you have every answer, it's just like, okay, so this guy just knows it all, I guess. But if you're just authentic and real and you're like, hey, I know some reasons and this is why I'm not, you know, this is why I believe what I believe, and you can share that in humility, that makes a huge difference. And that's the next part of this. When you share your faith, you should do it with gentleness and reverence, keeping a clear conscience. So the idea that, you know, you're going to destroy somebody or wreck somebody in an argument and you're going to totally crush them and they're going to look stupid when you're done with them, this is not a new thing to mankind. This is something, pride and arrogance is something that's always been an issue. So the Apostle Peter, Jesus' best friend, is saying, you should defend your faith. You should know it well enough so you can talk about it, but make sure you do it right. Make sure you do it like in a Christ-like way. And we still live in a culture that very much doesn't know how to do this, right? Most of us have been online and see how we treat each other. Peter's like, look, we shouldn't be like that as we follow Jesus, if he is the Lord of our lives. So we're going to start every week just talking about that first, just to remember. But what did we talk about last Sunday? So is there a God, just generally speaking? And the things that I brought forward were the idea of the universe itself, fine-tuning, life itself, right and wrong. Now, the universe as a whole is fascinating. The fact that it is even here is amazing. But there's two things to consider about the universe. One, it had a beginning. Two, it's limited by physical limitation. So the argument, and this is a classical argument, all these are, is that something that did not have a beginning and something that is not limited by physical limitations or someone that isn't must be behind all of this. In order to bring all this from nothing must be behind all that. But it's not just that. It's the fine-tuning of the universe itself. And this is probably one of the ones one of these points is most interesting to me because when the universe starts, it had to be exact right away. And in order for matter to exist, it's unbelievable that like, the mathematical equations that had to be perfect in the universe like that. Like they just had to happen. They just had to be perfect right away. And so the fine-tuning of the universe, not just for matter, but that third one, life itself. I thought this one was really interesting as well because the jump from matter, raw material, to life is a really big jump that we're still trying to figure out scientifically today. We're still trying to figure out how exactly that happened. And so again, just looking at the processes and looking at the complexity of all this and how it had to happen in such a precise way, precise orders. And then another classic argument is that idea of, like, well, who gets to decide what's right and wrong? People will argue, well, they'll say, we don't need God for that. We can, just evolutionarily speaking, we can do that on our own because it's about the advancement of the species. But the problem is, you look at history, and we've been pretty rotten, and it doesn't look like we're getting any better, right? So it, 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 we should just be like in this like state of nirvana by now, but we're not, right? So what is wrong? Well, we're still trying to decide, just like Genesis 3, that's what I love about the Bible, it's just so awkwardly authentic and honest, is like right from the very beginning in the garden, we've been trying to wrestle control from God about right and wrong. We've been trying to get wisdom on our own without God's intervention, and that's like part of, I think, what you see. is like, who gets to decide what's right and wrong? and these huge swings in history about what's right. Oh, actually, no, that's not right. That's wrong now. And then, well, actually, no, maybe we're too far on that. And you just have this, like, we just can't seem to get it right. It's who's strongest. It's who's loudest, right? Right and wrong. And, just, and so these are all kind of classic arguments, but really core important arguments to why there is at least maybe the idea, can we say, is God real? But today, though, I want to narrow it down and say, what about, like, a specific God? Can we say that there is a specific God? And this is a tricky question, and it's a valid question, because why are there so many paths? 
right? If there is only one God, why do we have so many different belief systems? We've got Islam, we've got Judaism, right? We've got tribal worship, we've got ancestral worship, we've got self-worship, we've got the energy of the universe, and of course, we've got Christianity. Why are there so many? Why so many paths exist? And that's the question I want to really wrestle with today is, can we say definitively that there's only one God, there's only one way, and it's like, well, that's just arrogant. That's just narrow-minded. You're just undermining everybody else, you know, billions of people all around the world. And it's like, okay, I'm not, but I have faith in the one who says I am the way, the truth, and the life. So I want to make a, a small case for that this morning and just give you some things to think about uh, as we explore this idea together. But here's some legitimate, uh, like, objections to the idea of there being one God. Uh, one is that there are so many. Two is that there's like, okay, well, if, if there was one God, why would he even allow so much confusion here on earth? Right? Like, if there is one God, why is there so many different options? Like, if he's powerful enough, why doesn't he just say, well, no, this is who I am and this is what you should believe? Another valid critique, right, another valid question is to say, well, each, like, each major religion, really in each religion, has very real experiential parts of that faith. And they have really deep connections with their creator, with their God. So if they do, doesn't that mean that at least some of them have to be wrong? Or perhaps are all of them wrong? Are we all just chasing a delusion, right? And these are some of the, the things that we wrestle with. And it's like, okay, valid point. Or the idea, and this is, I guess, another valid idea, if we don't look critically at our own faith, but we look critically at others, isn't that a mistake? And isn't that just kind of confirmation bias. For example, some people will believe that Moses part of the Red Sea. Well, yeah, that was just a miracle of God. But those same people will uncritically be like, well, or they'll critically look at um, Muhammad and be like, well, no, he didn't really divide the moon in half. That's silliness, right? Some people will say, well, hey, Buddha, he ascended to Nirvana. But they will look at Christianity and they'll say, well, but that's silly that Jesus came back from the dead. Like, that's Obviously, that can't happen, right? And so what we do is we, we believe kind of wholesale what we believe, but then we look at some other wild claim from another religion, and we just reject it because we're critical about it. We're like, mm, I don't know about that, and then round and round we go. So that's another kind of critique about believing in one God is like everybody is super critical about other faiths, but like they just kind of don't even question what they believe, right? And so that's not good either. So these are all like valid critiques about the idea of there just being one God. And we can go on and on and on. There's all kinds of critiques. And so if you've wrestled with this before, it's okay because there's lots of really good tough questions. But here's what I want to do this morning. I want to take all these ideas and all these critiques and I want to say, all right, well, let's distill them down and let's, let's think about them together. Like, is there any reason to believe in one God? So let's start from the youngest of ages, uh, at little kids. So there was a, uh, a woman that's a psychologist and her name is, I forgot, Deborah Kellerman. And she got to noticing that little kids seemed to all have this intuitive idea that a God existed. And so she did a study and then eventually wrote a paper on these children that she studied. And as early as we can measure in kids, because eventually, you know, they're, they're so young and you can't get anything out of them, it makes sense anyway, right? But when they get to that age when you can really start to peg what they're thinking, she noticed two things in children. One, that they believed that there was some kind of intelligence behind everything around us. They just kind of intuitively believe that. Like, there's just something behind all this, even if they didn't know what it was or who it was. They just kind of seem to have this broad understanding from the earliest of ages that there's something behind everything. And then closely related to that, the second thing was everything has a purpose. 
Like, kids don't tend to see things as super chaotic. It's like, oh, that's here for that reason, and that's here for that reason. Everything is in place just so for just a specific reason. And she thought that's fascinating, so that's why she did this study back in 2004. Fast forward to 2011. Oxford, right? And those guys are somewhat intelligent. Those ladies somewhat smart over there across the pond at Oxford. They did a study that was a global study that found that humans are predisposed to believe in God in the afterlife. A global study. And this was very interesting to them because it's like it raises the question. In this age of reason and enlightenment that we live in, the scientific revolutions, everything that's going on, why do humans all over the world stubbornly choose to believe in God in the afterlife? Why do we just want to be spiritual? Like it raises some really interesting questions. It seems like from the earliest age, it's almost like we're made to believe. And then it's just like we can't get rid of that. And the argument I want to make from Scripture is God says, yes, I put that in you. I, I built that into who you are. And so it's always going to be there. And all across humanity, we see that. And so in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, this is where God says this. Solomon says, he's put eternity into their hearts, but no one can discover the work God has been doing from the beginning and all the way to the end. I love that, because it's like there's this yearning inside of us for eternity, and you see it, again, from the very earliest accounts of humanity, this yearning for eternity, this yearning for what's out there. And then the second part of this is where I think science and faith really overlap. Uh, I know they'll put it odds a lot, but I see science and faith, and faith of like just trying to pursue, like, what's out there? What's going on? Right? What's happening? How do we get here? Why do I matter? Where's this all going? Asking these really big questions, and I see that like, God is communicating, like, yeah, I put that wonder and that desire into your heart. It's how I built you. And it's just interesting to see how studies, whether they're kids or whether they're adults, kind of bear this scripture out. Like, it's still like, yeah, man, we can't seem to get away from this idea that there's something out there and that we're built for worship. And that's why I think we get in trouble. We worship our jobs. We worship our personal identity and status. We worship money. We worship maybe drugs and alcohol. We, we, we worship a lot of stuff, right? We give our lives and we give our, like, our families to these things. And we think that that's what's going to fulfill us. And again, I think it goes back to here. Like, we're built for that worship. We're built for that connection. And our souls are just, like, yearning for it. Right? But. Back to that question of, is there just one God? This article, or this resource that I'm using for this sermon series, and just other things that I've studied, are really, their one point was interesting about their idea of being one God. Like, when you look across history, like all human history, we tend, for some reason, to go from polytheistic religions, as in many gods, and then eventually, given enough time, religions will tend to chip away all of those, and they'll end up with a God that looks a lot like the God of the Bible. It's just interesting. Over all of human history, given enough time, polytheistic religions tend to turn into trying to figure out one God. And it's like, again, is that part of how we're made? Is that like that yearning that, ah, it can't be a bunch of gods. That, you know, there has to be this one that my soul yearns for. And you see that in history. Actually, right around the time of Moses, 1500 B.C., so 3,500 years ago, there's a guy named Zoroaster, and he, he believed in, he was an Iranian prophet, and believed in all the gods, just east of where Moses was, just east, and all the gods that Zoroaster and his people believed in were the gods that we see in the Old Testament. Baal and all that other stuff, right, Molech, like all that stuff, that was his cultural gods, but Zoroaster was like, no, this doesn't even make sense. There's something going on out here 
but I can't try to please this God and then make this God angry. That's like, he's like, this is just like an untenable system to have. So basically, he tore everything away and was like, there's a good one and there's a bad one. That's where Zoroaster ended up, right? And then you see that in tribal religions in North America. You see that in, in tribal religions in Africa. You saw it in the 400s BC with Socrates. He rejected the Greek pantheon because he was like, this is silliness. Again, these gods that we serve, they're fickle, they're angry, they're morally bankrupt, right? Like, they're, they're, who are you even following? So he whittled it down to the good. Just the one. And then Aristotle comes right after him in the 300s, and he was like, yeah, this Greek pantheon stuff is craziness. There's the first mover. There's the prime mover. There's the unmoved mover. So he got it down to one as well. So it's just interesting, and those are a handful of examples, but how we tend to, as people, be like, no, there's just got to be one. And it's like there's something in our hearts as humans that are searching for that. And it's cool to look back in history and see that tendency. Right? Just that there's something in us that wants that. So I want to talk about them, that one God. So if God is real and if there is one, and he's kind of like, he's honing us and he's building us to like desire him and want relationship with him, well, who is that and what does that look like? So as a Christian, what I want to make a case for is that that's Jesus Christ. Jesus is God, and he is the one God that revealed himself. So there's some things to consider. The historical significance of Jesus. First and foremost, when we think about this towering person, this towering figure of Jesus Christ, because he is without question the most lightning rod person in history, right? I mean, we based our calendar off of the life of Jesus Christ, right? It's 2023 because of Jesus. And listening to some podcasts recently, they were talking about guys like Stan Harris and Tom Holland. These guys are pretty much atheists, um, but they still are like, you know what, in America and in the West and in this world, something we take for granted is the influence of Jesus Christ. They don't think he's God. They don't think he's the Savior of the world. But they recognize and will say, people that don't even believe in Jesus for who he is will say that there's no way we have human rights without Jesus Christ and Christianity. They just didn't exist before then. Like, like Roman, in the Roman world, a man owned his family. Like, straight up owned his family. Like, property. And then Jesus comes along, and he's like, no, actually, women have a lot of value. Children have a lot of value. And just upended the whole world system. And then the church that exploded because of this guy, Jesus, it's like that question of how did this nomadic, homeless, itinerant preacher completely upend all of human history in just three years? Like, that's a really good question to wrestle with. Whether you believe in Jesus or not, like, how did this guy do this? Because he's such a big figure that even Muslims include, he's in the Quran. Jesus' virgin birth is in the Quran. Like, they had to reckon with Jesus and who he is. Uh, Hindus and even Buddhists include Jesus. Because it's like, this guy is such a towering figure, we got to figure out somehow how to get him into our story. Like, we gotta, like we got to figure out how Jesus fits in. That's how big he is. That when they started all these other belief systems, it's like, okay, but we got to reckon with Jesus because he's that big of a character. In Christianity, it is completely set apart because the things about Christianity are grounded in historical reality. It's not a person, Jesus Christ, we're talking about. It's an actual crazy miracle of the resurrection that we're talking about. It's not things that happen somewhere else. And here's how Paul would say it. This is how important the resurrection is in 1 Corinthians 15. In this chapter, just in case you didn't know, 1 Corinthians 15 is the resurrection chapter. 
So if you want to know how important the resurrection is, the implications of it, if it's not real, your faith is joke, all that kind of stuff, like that's in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And here's what Paul says about this resurrection. He says, look, I want to make clear to you, brothers and sisters, the gospel which I preached to you, which you received, and now he says, now you're taking your stand on it. You're basing your life on this gospel. That's how important it is, right? I'm going to bet my eternity on it. And by which you're being saved. If you hold to the message I preached to you, unless you believe in vain, right? Unless it's not even true and you just believe in something that's not real. But I pass on to you as most important what I also received. The resurrection, right? That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and then that he was buried raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. Like, this is the linchpin, Paul is saying. Like, everything hinges on this event. In verse 5, and then he appeared to Cephas, and then the twelve. Right? The twelve cowards. Then he appeared to over 500 brothers and sisters at one time. Most of them are still alive, but some have fallen asleep. Everything, everything hinges on the resurrection. So how did those twelve cowards who abandoned Jesus one night and three days later all willing to die for their faith? What happened in the span of a week that would take guys that would literally abandon Jesus because they were scared, and now all of a sudden, they're going to go and give their lives for this. They're all going to die except John, who gets boiled in oil and then outcast of Patmos. Like, what happened to those guys? What happened to those women? Something unbelievable must have happened. Something legit must have happened for this to be like, this is the linchpin of everything. Because if it doesn't happen, Christianity dies with Jesus. Because there's people that could bear witness to it. But if you read between the lines, also there would have been lots of people that were like, no, bro, Jesus is dead, man. That's not real. He didn't come back. There would have been an overwhelming amount of people that could have been like, no, I know that story. I was there in Jerusalem. Like, that guy's dead. He didn't come back. But all of a sudden, though, this movement blows up. And so Paul says it's all hinged on that because that validates everything that Jesus said about himself. And here's what Jesus said. He said he's God. He said that heaven's real, hell is real, judgment is real. He said that eternal life is real. He also said eternal death is real. Like, he talked about some really hard things, and he came to give us a message of hope that he is God and that he is here to bring salvation to mankind. And so those are, like, those are ridiculous claims. If you hear somebody say that, you're like, man, that's, that's, that's insanity. What are you talking about? And this is the stuff he regularly talked about. And when he says specifically that he's God, that's like, it's like mind-blowing at the time that he would make a claim like that. But it's not just what he said, it's what he did. And then it's the prophecies that he fulfilled. Like, there's so much evidence for Jesus Christ. So I want you to think about this. The prophecies that Jesus fulfilled, right? If we want to say conservatively, there was a hundred prophecies that Jesus fulfilled. Like, let's say just a hundred of them, right? Some people say maybe as many as 300 prophecies that he specifically fulfilled. But let's just say, for argument's sake, we'll go with a hundred. What do you think the odds are that Jesus Christ would be able to specifically fulfill 100 prophecies that are hundreds of years old? I didn't know. I had to look it up. I was like, wow, I wonder what that is. So the odd that Jesus could do that is one in that number there at the bottom. And I had no idea what that number even was. And I had to actually look it up. And I went to some math website that helps you pronounce numbers that you don't know. That's where I ended up during my, my time this week. And so, just in case you didn't know, that's 1.2 non-million. That's what that number is there at the end. Now, I looked this up, 
and the, like the number was like this long, and I got about halfway through it, and I was like, I'm going to read that to everybody, and then I just got lost somewhere in the middle as I was reading. I was like, I don't even know the words I'm saying anymore, and so I was like, no, forget that. But one in 1.2 nonillion, like that's just astronomical, and I don't even really know what that means, right? Those kind of odds. So then I tried to say, all right, what's like a, a physical thing that we could say? And then Tim actually conveniently just said it this week on our podcast. And he said, the odds that Jesus would fulfill the prophecies about him, so maybe a more like a mental picture that you could see. So if you took Texas, which is kind of large, if you took Texas and you filled Texas a foot deep with quarters, and then you took a quarter, painted it white on both sides, threw it in the middle somewhere, mixed it up, then went and got a blind person, brought the blind person with you, and said, hey, find the quarter in one shot. Go. Like, that's what it's like. That's statistically what we're talking about, what it's like that Jesus would actually fulfill all of these prophecies. Because some of them, if you're, you know, if you're uh, cynical about it, you'd be like, well, he could just fulfill some of those on his own. True. Like the donkey one. I'm going to ride into Jerusalem on a donkey. That's pretty easy. There's donkeys everywhere, right? I just need to feel one. I can ride in on, the, you know, on this thing. But no, like all the ones that he couldn't control, the time, the space, the area where he was born, all this stuff that was prophesied, he didn't have any control over that. Right? And there were people that could verify whether or not these things actually happened in his life. So the odds, again, that he would do this are, are pretty insane. But that is the point of the New Testament. This stuff is insanity. It's crazy that we're actually talking about these things 2,000 years later. But that's the point of the New Testament. They're like, yeah, we get it. He made some outrageous claims, but the resurrection gives proof of all that. Because if you didn't know, why did Jesus get crucified. What was the claim against him? Because he said he was God. John chapter 10, unequivocally, the leaders know what Jesus was saying. They knew that Jesus, a mere man, they said, is claiming to be God. That's why we want to kill you. They said it. They didn't, there was no confusion in their minds that Jesus was claiming to be God. And in John chapter 14, we see Jesus specifically say this. He says it to us, one of the disciples, Philip. He says, have I been among you all this time? And you still don't know me, Philip? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Right? If you're looking at me, you're looking at God. Like, that's, like he's not missing any words there. He's claiming that he is God. And so the book of John, chapter 20, a little bit later, like, why did I record all this stuff? Jesus, Jesus performed a ton of stuff. Lots of signs in the presence of his disciples that are not written in this book. However, these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is, in fact, the Messiah, who is God, the Son of God, who is God, and that by believing in Him, you may have life in His name because He is God. He's the only type person that can guarantee life. Life giver. That's God. That's God's responsibility. That's His realm. So I wrote down all these crazy things so that you would know these things right here. It's the whole purpose of the gospel. It's the whole purpose of the New Testament and the message that they have, that we can actually know not that just there is a God, but we can know that God personally. And this affects how we approach Jesus. We have, it affects how we, if, if you say you're a Christian, how you follow Jesus. Right? Because if you say, if you stop saying he's my co-pilot, and like he's my friend, if you stop treating Jesus like a vending machine or like a therapist, right, that's just there for you all the time to just, like, just to listen to you, and if you start treating him like he's actually God, that's going to affect how you live your life. Like, that will make a drastic change in how, like, you, how sacrificial you are, how much you serve, you know, right? how giving you are, like, just the way you are with annoying people, right? People the other 
Republican or Democratic Party, right? We got an election coming up. How are you going to be? Are you going to act like Jesus? Right? It affects all this kind of stuff in our lives, and that's important to understand, right? And then as the New Testament develops, God continues to flesh this idea about Jesus uh, being God. And then in Colossians 2, Paul would say this, the Apostle Paul. He says, the entire fullness of God's nature dwells bodily in Christ. Just like Jesus said, if you're looking at me, you're looking at God. The fullness of God would dwell in Jesus Christ. So how can we know that not only is there a God, but we can know which God? Well, that's what Jesus Christ did. That's what he said about himself. That's what he was trying to communicate. Yes, there is a God up there. And yes, this God wants you to know him. But in the West, in America, right, we're kind of rejecting that. We just want to be spiritual because that's a lot easier. Because if I'm spiritual, I believe in the energy of the universe directing everything. Can the energy of the universe tell me to do anything? No. I'm not morally accountable to some amoebous energy, right? And that's why it's easy to believe in. That's why it's easy just to believe in God because I can make God into my own image. But if I say I believe in Jesus Christ, and Jesus Christ says in John 14 that if you love me, you're going to keep my commands, that's a whole different ballgame. That's a whole different ballgame, right? But that's who we're talking about. The one that wants us to know him. The one that wants us to know him. Here's some other interesting th- things I want to close out with. Just about the significance of Jesus. Just think about the odds of this happening. So at the time of Jesus, the Greeks had already taken over the whole world, right? Alexander the Great was pretty good. Then he died, right? But what did he do? He Hellenized the whole world, which means he brought Greek culture to the world. Most importantly, though, he brought the Greek language to the world. So now the whole world, by the time Jesus shows up, has a common second language. Not only that, but the Romans are firmly in control by the time of Jesus' birth. And what have they done? They've given us nice, safe roads to travel all over the world. So those two things just happen to have happened. The third thing that's interesting to think about with Jesus' birth is he was born in the crossroads of the entire known world at the time. Because Israel was the only way to get from North Africa to Asia, North Africa to Europe, Europe to Asia, Europe to North Africa, and everything had to crisscross and go through Israel, right, at that time. Not only that, but Israel had major ports that could quickly take people to North Africa and to Europe. So Jesus just happened to be born at a time when the world had a common language, when there was roads that were safe enough to take the message far and wide, quickly and safely, and they had ports accessing all of the known world as well. And so the odds of that happening are pretty astounding. I've heard historians say before that if you wanted to start a major world religion and have it spread quickly and widely, there's no better time in human history to do it than when Jesus Christ was born. Galatians 4 actually says that. When the time was right, God sent his son, born of a woman, subject to the law. When the time was right, just when history had panned out to the point where that message of Jesus would spread like wildfire, that's when Jesus came into the world. And if you don't know Christian history well, there's a, there's a, there's a lot of evidence that shows that Christianity was growing almost too fast. So if you know the, the St. Ignatius, if anybody knows that name, St. Ignatius, that guy is famous partly because he had to, like, rein in Christianity. So the Catholic Church kind of started out of this movement of being like, oh, my gosh, Christianity is going way too fast. These people don't even know what they believe. They're just like, Jesus is a Savior. And the Holy Spirit was just taking the church all over the place. But they didn't really know what they believed. And so they were kind of getting themselves in trouble. So St. Ignatius and others were like, all right, we've got to start training some leaders. Like, we've got to start helping these people grow in their faith because, man, nothing's getting out of hand. Like, Christianity is spreading like wildfire. And it's like, why did that happen? 
This is a historical fact. What happened in the book of Acts is not fairy tales. And I know too many Christians who they don't like they don't see the book of Acts or the Bible as like real history. It's like they're just cool stories. But if you look at it from a historical perspective, the book of Acts really happened. Christianity exploded. And in 300 years, it had completely taken over the Roman Empire. Like, it's insane how fast Christianity grew, and it's a historical fact. How did that happen? Again, historians that don't even believe in Jesus, they say they still can't figure out how the book of Acts happened. Like, historians that don't believe in Jesus are like, I don't understand how the book of Acts could have happened, but we know that it did. So something, again, something very real happened. Jesus dies and doesn't come back, it ends right then and there. And we're not standing here talking about this. We're not doing this because it all dies right then and there. But Christianity exploded. The historical significance is just insane. And then again, like I mentioned earlier, just the fact of human rights, like just that, historians can't explain that either aside from Jesus and the early church. Like the effect that Jesus had on the world is unbelievable. And it's something worth considering that a homeless, wandering, itinerant preacher that had no status and he came from a joke of a town, Nazareth. Nazareth was actually a bad word. Like to say somebody was from Nazareth was just like a total dig at them and their family and everything that they were. So he had like no place of authority and respect. And yet in three years, he turns the entire world upside down. How's that happen? It's a question worth considering. Even if you follow Christ, it's a question worth considering. But this idea that we can move toward a monotheistic God, again, it's something that you see happening naturally in history. That you see something that God has revealed intentionally in history, personally in Jesus Christ. It's what he said about himself. It's who he said he was. That there is this one God that wants to be very personal and wants us to know him. Like, that's something very significant. And then you think about the reality of the early church. You think about the reality of the resurrection. And it means something deep for us. I want to close with two passages, uh, a few passages, a couple we already read together. But just to help us think through this again, like what did God actually say about himself? And is it narrow-minded? And is it just like hateful of other cultures and hateful of other people? Or is it that God put this in our hearts and God did actually reveal this truth? And yes, it's a narrow truth. But if I've got a sickness and somebody says, hey, I've got a very specific cure for that specific sickness, I'm not going to be like, well, that's kind of narrow-minded. Right? But if God says, look, there's a very specific cure to this, this issue we call sin and this separation that you feel in your soul, here's, here it is. Here's the solution. Like, there's something that's to be said for considering that, at least. So, out of the Old Testament, very early on in Deuteronomy, when, Jesus, when he's like, when God's giving some uh, shape to his people here, he says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And that's the Shema. That's what that's called. It's the Shema. It's a very, very important passage of Scripture to Jews. And so years later, hundreds of years later, in Isaiah, he would say this to the prophet Isaiah. This is what Yahweh says. Israel's king and redeemer, the Lord Almighty, Yahweh Sabaoth. I am the first and I am the last. Apart from me, there's no other God. And Jesus in Revelation 22, just in case we don't miss it, he picks the same words up. And he says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Jesus Christ is that one God that our souls are built to worship, that our souls are looking for, and that history just kind of tends to drift towards. And so when we see this, like, this idea that, well, it's just, it's, just, it's about where you're born, and that's it. That's, that's, all, that's all it is. It's like, well, no. There's a church all over the world. People know Jesus all over the world. China's a great example. 
China, there's anywhere between 40 million and 140 million Christians. We just don't know because there's so many underground churches there. But you talk about like, Chinese missionaries, and then Christianity is exploding over there. People are coming to know Jesus, and it's like changing that culture from the inside out, just like we saw the early church do. It's going to be really interesting to see in, like, in the next 20, 30, 40 years how much different China is as that church over there continues to grow and continues to change from the inside out. It's going to be really interesting to watch. But even if it was just like 100 million Christians over there, that's a third of the population of our country. Like there's a humongous church over there. God is doing something unbelievable there. So where you live, that doesn't have anything to do with God's ability to to reach people. But we're all searching for something. So whether you know Jesus today or whether you don't, I would ask you to leave with this. Like what are you going to do with that? How does this affect the way that you follow Jesus if you are a Christian? That Jesus is not your buddy. He's not just your like your thing to go talk to. He's not your sounding board. He will do that with you, which I love. But he is God. Like this is who he said he was. And are we going to treat him like that? Will we follow him like that? And if you don't know Jesus as your Savior, will you take this into consideration and say, Wow, look at all this stuff. Maybe is that enough to at least slow down and consider that maybe there is one way. Maybe God did reveal himself specifically. Right? And again, we don't need to beat people over the head with this stuff, but it's what God has given us. And there's just a few things that we can share with people. Amen? Just a little bit of stuff. You know, it's just amazing when you start to study this stuff. I love apologetics and all these things that go with it. I think it's fascinating to think what God has given us. So let me close out in prayer just on that note right there. So Lord, I thank you that you are the first and the last, that you're beginning and the end, Lord Jesus. And I pray that specifically for those that know you, God, that this will land in our lives. God, we are following the creator of the universe. And I pray that if we don't know you, if somebody here is, is not good to go with you, like they don't know you as Savior, God, I pray that today would be the day of salvation, Lord, that they put their trust and their faith in you as the Savior. God is the one true God, the one in relationship, and who paid that price, like Paul said, paid the price for us on the cross. God, would you help them just put your faith, their faith in you today, Jesus. And I pray that in your name, Lord. Mr. said, amen. It was great seeing you all today. Happy Father's Day. Once again, thanks for listening. If you enjoyed today's message, we'd love for you to subscribe to the podcast so you get notified of new content every week. Remember, we want to help you worship, connect, and serve. So if you live in the central Massachusetts area, we would love for you to engage with us on Sundays. For more information, service times, and details about our children's and youth ministries, visit us at quaybogchurch.org. Have a blessed week.